Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 5% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code WORDS. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code WORDS. Thank you. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the boats and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells didn't catch people's eyes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Words Matter. That's the podcast that I, Norm Ornstein, do with the wonderful Kavita Patel, who is off in Spain with her eight-year-old son who is playing soccer. And uh, maybe one day we'll appear in the World Cup. Who knows? But today we have a very special guest. We're going to talk about the dysfunction in Congress and what we can do about it and what we can't do about it with one of the best members of Congress that I have seen over many decades, Derek Kilmer from the state of Washington, who chaired the Special Committee on the Modernization of Congress over two Congresses. And it was during a period of tribalism and deep dysfunction, just about the only committee I saw that worked on a thoroughly bipartisan basis. So thanks for being with us, Derek. Maybe talk for a little bit to set the stage about what spurred the creation of this committee and uh, how you operated and what you managed to accomplish. Well, first of all, it's good to be with you. And i as we talk about ways to improve Congress, I feel like visiting with Norm Ornstein is, you know, visiting with the Oracle. So thank you for wanting to engage in the conversation. I think it's clear both of us would rather be in Spain watching soccer right now. But so about every 20 or 30 years or so, Congress realizes that things aren't working the way they ought to, and they create a committee to do something about it. As you mentioned, the recent iteration was called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which made us sound like we were the IT help desk. But we were nicknamed the Fixed Congress Committee, and it was the first committee of this kind since the early 90s. Before that, there were some efforts in the 70s. And the the origin story actually started in 2018 with a discussion around House rules. There was some conversation afoot between Democrats and Republicans with the recognition that we didn't know as of that summer when we started talking who would be in the majority, Democrats or Republicans. And that seemed like an ideal time to try to figure out, okay, if you don't know who's going to be the majority and who's going to be the minority, how would you set the rules? How would you change the rules so that it would promote more transparency and fairness and productivity for the institution? As we had these conversations, every now and then a member would say like, yeah, and we lose staff too much, right? The turnover in this place is terrible. And we'd say like, yes, that is a problem. However, it's not really a rules package problem. So like, let's put that in a little park. Then you'd have someone say, the technology in this place is the pits, right? We, you know, we, we, Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. And that's pretty apt. And so members would say, yeah, that is a problem. It's not really a rules problem, though. So we kind of put it in a parking lot. 
we ended up developing some proposed reforms to the rules package, but then we had this long list of stuff that also needed to be addressed. So our pitch was, hey, this hasn't happened in 30 years. Let's create a committee to do something about it. And so as part of the rules package of 2018, this committee was established. Pretty unique in that it was established with an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, six Democrats, six Republicans. It required a supermajority vote to um, make any recommendations. And that really shaped how we did our work and um, led to some of the uh, collaboration and bipartisanship that you mentioned. So you had, was supposed to be one Congress, you got extended for a second. Talk a bit about what you managed to accomplish. What you accomplished in the first term, what was left over? And of course, you had some turnover on the committee when you got to the second term as well. But let's see what we got done, and then we can talk about what remains. Sure. And if it's all right, Norm, I'd I'd love to start off by talking about sort of how we did it and then what we did, if that's all right. Perfect. Oh, yeah. I I just mentioned the, the sort of challenge when you have an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, some of whom were very conservative, some of the Democrats very progressive. And, you know, trying to figure out how you find common ground is tricky. And so we did some things. I I am someone who believes that if you want Congress to work differently, you need to do things differently. So we did a lot of different things on this committee. As an example, I reached out when the committee was established to my Republican counterpart, Tom Graves. And I said, Tom, I have a crazy idea. Usually when a committee is established, it gets its funding and you divide by either two or you do one party gets a third of the funds and the majority gets two thirds of the funds. The majority use, you know, the Democrats use their money to hire people with a Democratic background who put on blue jerseys. The Republicans use their funding to hire people with a Republican background who put on red jerseys. And then they spend the rest of the time fighting with each other. My pitch to Tom was, hey, what if we don't do that? What if we jointly hire a combined staff, some of whom will have a Democratic background, some of whom will have a Republican background, but all of whom will put on let's fix Congress jerseys? And to his credit, he said, sure, I'm willing to give it a shot. And that really was impactful because it enabled us to basically force multiply as a committee. We also did them some things procedurally that are very different that you don't see happen in this place very often. So for example, we did a bipartisan planning retreat. To my knowledge, we are the only committee in Congress that has done a bipartisan planning retreat. What do I mean by that? Well, we booked a room in the Library of Congress for most of a day and we went around the room and talked about why we were there, why we were in Congress, what we, how it met or failed to meet our expectations, and what we wanted to bring to the committee in terms of potential reforms. It was really interesting and very value-adding because, I don't know about you, I've never been part of an organization that, when starting off on a mission, didn't try to figure out, hey, so what do we want to get done? How do we want to do this? So we did that on our committee, and that's, that's pretty unique. Uh, we also, if you watch one of our hearings on C-SPAN, you have too much time on your hand. But if you watch one of our hearings on C-SPAN, you would notice something. We don't sit with Democrats on one side of a dais and Republicans on the other. Why? We sit, we stagger our seating. Democrats sit next to Republicans and Republicans sit next to Democrats. Why did we do that? Well, you know, when you have a witness come and testify, genetic predisposition is to lean over to the person next to you and say, that was kind of interesting. What do you think about that? And in our committee, you were leaning over to someone from the different party. In fact, in our committee, we didn't even sit on a dais. We sat around a round table. Why? Well, I don't know about you. I've never had a good conversation speaking to the back of somebody's head. And so we decided to try to sort of break the mold on how committees engage with one another. So why do I mention this? This was not cosmetic. 
it meant that we were wildly successful in passing bipartisan reforms. In the first Congress, we passed 98. In the second Congress, we passed 104. So for a total of 202 reforms. We also made a decision that we weren't just going to make recommendations and have them go into the ether, that we would actually work on implementation during the life of the committee. As a consequence of that, about three quarters of our recommendations have either been implemented or have seen some progress towards implementation. And they deal with things, as I mentioned in my first answer, with everything from staff capacity to how Congress uses technology, a lot of stuff on staff, which I know you've been outspoken about in terms of the importance of building the capacity of the institution to solve big problems. We actually took on a topic that I'm happy to double click on this if you want. We took on a topic we were not assigned. We looked at issues related to civility and collaboration. and proposed some reforms in that regard as well. You know, some big ticket items, for example, what we called community project funding, mm -hmm. trying to enable members of Congress to propose funding for projects in the appropriations process, funding for things in their district with a set of guardrails to prevent against any sort of abuse, but to really restore Article I authorities to, to the United States House. So those are some of the 30,000 foot highlights, and I'm happy to go into detail on any of those you want. Or So uh, the latter was, of course, earmark reform. And, we don't use that word anymore. But uh, it became a dirty word, foolishly, and uh, you brought it back. That was a highlight. What would you say are the handful of things that you were able to accomplish that will endure and will be most impactful? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the most important things that we worked on was the improvement of, of staffing. You know, the, the reality is Congress is not going to be equipped to handle our nation's largest issues or to help constituents navigate the complex federal ecosystem if we can't retain talented staff that have policy expertise or have a deep understanding of the communities that they serve. You know, so that is a big part of the reason that we worked on this issue of how do we recruit and retain and have more diverse staff. and. Our committee advanced a lot of recommendations to ensure that we can retain our best and brightest. Some of that meant setting up a HR hub. You know, Congress, as you know, since you've written extensively on this, you know, it's really 435 independent contractors. And as a consequence, it was 435 separate HR departments. One of the things we proposed, and this has been implemented, is actually establishing an HR hub that can uh, promulgate best practices that can share resources around pay and benefits. Having a one-stop shop is really helpful for that. We also proposed, and we've now seen established a congressional staff academy to help with professional development. And that includes management training for members and for chiefs of staff and district directors. That's the type of thing that can facilitate growth professionally and have a better working environment. We also made proposals to make pay more competitive with the executive branch. Now, those uh, watching or listening may wonder, so how does that help make Congress better for the American people? Well, the reality is Congress's ability to solve big problems will be impeded if it can't hang on to talented people. You know, if you watch the Facebook hearings from a few years back and it looked like Congress was getting outgunned, it was because Congress was outgunned. You had a situation where members didn't have the knowledge and capacity. And a lot of that falls on um, making sure that there's terrific staff that we're able to hang on to. So we made a number of recommendations in that space. 
I, you know, the data will tell over time whether those reforms lead to better recruitment, retention, and diversity of staff, but I'm really hopeful on that front. The other thing that we've made recommendations on that have not been implemented yet are changes to schedule and calendar. Congress isn't here enough. And when we're, when Congress is in town, there's too many conflicts. If you want committees to be the place where learning happens, where the interchange of ideas happens, where problem solving occurs, it cannot be a place where members are in five committees at the same time. They airdrop into one ping pong from one committee to the next, basically showing up when it's their time to give a five minute speech that they can put on social media. That is not going to be helpful in terms of ensuring that the institution can solve big problems for our constituents. And so we made some recommendations around schedule and calendar to try to deconflict the calendar to make sure that members aren't in multiple committees at the same time, trying to have Congress be here a bit more so that we can actually take on some of these difficult issues. Um, I think those, I'm hopeful that those recommendations get made. And then I guess, uh, finally, Norm, I really think the work we did on civil civility and collaboration was important. And I'm, I'm happy to dive into that a bit more if you want me to. This is great, Derek. Uh, uh, just a few comments. First, I love the Staff Academy and having members involved as well, because you're absolutely right that there are 435 independent contractors in a lot of ways, but many members have no experience or uh, knowledge about how you run an independent operation with 20 employees and with all the other things that come with it. So getting that training is particularly important. The scheduling issue, it always amuses me. I was uh, the staff director of a committee that reorganized the Senate's committee system in the 1970s. And we tried to cut the number of assignments that senators had. They uh, usually had five or six committees and as many as 30 subcommittees. And one of the things we tried to do was in the early ages of computerized scheduling to get a computerized schedule so that everybody could know at any given time where the conflicts were and the committees could try and minimize them. It is still the case that the congressional record will refer to SRES 4 of uh, February of 1977, and this is still in the works. <laughs> they still haven't done it. The Bipartisan Policy Center did some great work on this, and I'm going to do my best to remember the data. I think the average member, as of two Congresses ago, served on 5.4 committees and subcommittees. The, in 2019, Congress was here for 58 travel days and 57 full days. You know, so you know how it works. You fly in on a Monday, votes are at 6.30. That counts as a travel day. You're there Tuesday and Wednesday, that's a full day. And then Thursday, we're done voting by noon, that's a travel day. So all of the committees, by and large, pack all of their committee meetings and subcommittee meetings into those two days per week that you're here for the full day, which means members have massive conflict. So if you're watching hearings on C-SPAN, it looks like a bunch of members aren't there. It's because they're probably in another hearing at the same time. The reality is pretty much every high school in the country has figured out how to deconflict schedule. Most all colleges and universities figured out how to do this. It's time for Congress to do it. And so we, we made some recommendations on that front that I think, again, that doesn't sound like a silver bullet to fixing Congress, but I think it's one of those things that when people say, gosh, you know, that it seems like uh, Congress is more performative rather than focused on problem solving. I actually think the degree to which committees have become dysfunctional is a huge factor in that. 
I would agree. And it's committees and the floor. And one thing uh, that we have to add to that is call time. When I emerge from the metro to go to the House, I often will see a stream of members running across to the Capitol Hill Club or down to the Democratic Club or to a townhouse where they can do fundraising. And it fragments the schedule even more when people are in town. I have often said that if I could do one thing internally, it would be to move the schedule to three weeks on, one week off, the three weeks in Washington, five days a week from nine to five, so that people are not rushing off. It might actually encourage people to bring their families to Washington, which has happened less and less. I'm no longer dewy-eyed about what impact it would have if you had more personal relationships. It might cut down a little bit on the vilification, but it's not necessarily going to change the behavior. But if people were here Monday through Friday from nine to five, and in an ideal world, no fundraising on those 15 days a week, you can do it the other 15. People could read. They could spend time on the floor. We could have more debate. You could actually have more in-depth committee hearings. But every time, as you know, Derek, that we've tried to change the schedule, people who have their families back home, who want to spend less time in Washington, some of it going back to the Gingrich era, because the more time you spent in Washington, the more you could be captured by Washington, it's been pushed back. And that's true of both parties. They're into a rhythm of being here either Monday night or Tuesday and leaving on Thursday and don't want to get out of it. So it's going to take some hard work to change it, but I actually think it could have a remarkable impact. Well, you're, t- you're touching on two things that I think um, I really agree with you. One, you know, I, I would support the three on and then one back in the district. Well, honestly, though, we looked at the data. You could do two on where you started. You could start on a Monday, let's say 630 votes. You go till Friday at five. You start the next Monday at 9 a.m. and go till Friday at 5. You could do that for two weeks and then two weeks in the district. If you compare that model, two on, two off, with full days, four days in the one week, five days in the other, the math works so that you'd actually be both in your district more and you would be in D.C. productive more. Will you lose his time with the terrifically fine folks of Alaska Airlines in my circumstance, you know, it's just less and fewer travel days. And you would probably, to your point, probably stick around for that weekend in the middle. Certainly us West Coast members would. That might lend itself to at least a bit more comedy in the place if members were hanging out for the weekend and wanted to grab a bite. So I think that's important. You also touched on campaign finance. To my chagrin, our committee was not able to uh, take up those issues in part because the committee rule that established us required a two-thirds vote. And I just, we, we could not find terrain on which the plane could land on that issue between the two parties. But, I, you know, hope, hope springs eternal that you could see some forward motion on campaign finance reform. It's going to be eternal, I'm afraid, uh, at least the uh, direction in which we've been going. Talk a little bit about the unfinished business. What are the major things you were unable to accomplish? Uh, One of them, as you know, near and dear to my heart is the continuity of government uh, issues. But uh, what's left and are there any opportunities to get some movement done, some of those things? Yeah. 
Well, let me answer that in two ways. One, um, we got to work on implementation. And thankfully, you know, one of our final recommendations, we made two final recommendations about sort of the future of reform. One was we suggested that the House Administration Committee create a new subcommittee focused on implementation of modernization reforms. Uh, that has been done. In fact, we just organized House Admin today. I'll be ranking member of that subcommittee. Stephanie Bice from Oklahoma will chair that subcommittee. But I think that's good news because it means, again, we made 202 recommendations. I think 44, 45 have been fully implemented. So you've still got a chunk of, you know, 150 something that, 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 you know, needs, need Congress to pay attention and make sure they make it across the finish line. And so having a subcommittee dedicated to that, I think is really important. To your point, there are a few issues that we weren't able to get across the finish line. The issues related to continuity of Congress, I think are really important. We are, we're playing with fire as an institution. The potential for havoc is significant. And you, you've laid out, I know, scenarios that could be a real problem and could really undermine both the ability of the institution to function in a mass casualty event or the, the ability of the institution to have credibility in something less than a mass casualty event. And so while there were proposals from the commission that you were involved with, we weren't able to get two-thirds vote for those. We were able to get agreement to propose actually creating a select committee within Congress to look specifically at these issues of continuity. So I, I, I'm hopeful that we can see some effort there. Beyond that, there's another example where we proposed the creation of a, of a separate committee, and that was to focus on evidence-based policymaking within the legislative branch. There was a similar committee or commission that was established looking at evidence-based policymaking in the executive branch. But if this is going to be a place that makes policy based on data, not just on sort of ideology, then you need to see some reforms happen so that the sort of disposition of the institution is more towards the use of evidence. And there are a lot of good ideas out there on that front. And I think if you established a committee in that regard, we could make a lot of progress. Those are a couple. There are some things we just weren't able to get two thirds vote on things like campaign finance reform, gerrymandering reform, even looking at things like how um, political primaries happen. You know, I think there's some really interesting ideas out there around things like rank, rank choice voting or multi-member districts that could really change up how this institution functions. Um, but we, we simply weren't able to, to land the plan on those either. I'm all in favor of multi-member districts and rank choice voting and also very much behind enlarging the house, which is another issue uh, your colleague, uh, Sean Caston. And Don Beyer, who's been very enthusiastic about this, have uh, both uh, focused on, on those things. I'm old enough to have been around when the Office of Technology Assessment was erased. And to be frank, Newt Gingrich, as soon as he became speaker, got rid of it because he didn't like evidence-based policymaking, because the evidence went against his ideology. And we've been unable to recreate the Office of Technology Assessment, which was a, a, a part of Congress that uh, contained experts, scientists, and others who had real expertise in issue areas. And while we've beefed up a little bit, and your staff recommendations will presumably do more, 
it gets us into a one of the areas that's less comfortable to talk about, which is structural reforms are important and necessary, but they may not be sufficient if you don't have members who are interested in doing what we think they should be doing. If members don't want science or evidence or distort the reality, if they're not interested in finding ways to work together to solve policy. So just, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that more generally. And I know it's difficult now with the way the dynamic inside uh, the house, to be frank, I watched a good portion of the hearing, uh, the oversight, I'll use that term loosely, that Jim Comer did yesterday on uh, fraud in the uh, uh, grant-making process, and it was cringeworthy. It was not based on evidence. It singled out only states that were democratic states. It ignored the evidence. What do we do if we don't have members who want to do the right thing? It's a really good question. I do think part of the value in looking at things like campaign finance reform, gerrymandering, and political primaries is that it may change the type of people that you elect. That is a factor. The other thing, though, I think that is meaningful is I mentioned we did some work on civility and collaboration. There was an NBC News poll last year that found that 70% of Americans agreed with the statement that America has become so polarized it can no longer solve major issues facing the country. 70%. You know, and the constant gridlock that we see does prevent the institution from making headway on issues that Americans care about, even some issues where there is consensus. And so our committee decided to to really dive into this subject. We uh, had hearings where we brought in uh, management consultants, political scientists, organizational psychologists, uh, we talked to marriage counselors. Um, I thought about consulting an exorcist at one point just to figure out how do you change up the culture of the institution? And, you know, I'll give you one example, and it seems like a minor example, but I think it kind of proves the point. One of the organizational psychologists we talked to said, hey, you should really talk to this sports coach because he took over a loser team that was super dysfunctional and he turned it into a winner. And so we called up, I had the a call with a, a collegiate football coach. And I told him I wouldn't rat him out, so I won't say who. But I said, coach, what do you do when you've got players on the team that are actively trying to sabotage the team? And he said, well, I, I cut him. And I said, okay, so we, we don't really have that option. And I said, so he said, well, well, I bench him. And I said, well, we don't have that option either. And he said, well, let me ask you something. I said, shoot. He said, how do you do new player orientation? And I said, kind of funny. I said, we don't really have new players, but I said, there is new member orientation. And he said, how does it work? And I kind of laughed. I said, you know, it's funny because members speak to their experience of this in that it works entirely the wrong way. Literally, you show up for orientation and in years past, you had literally signs that said, okay, Democrats, you get on this bus, Republicans, you get on that bus. Most of the orientation process was designed to keep the two parties apart. And, you know, it's not surprising that if you're oriented in that way, you continue on that path. And the sports coach I talked to said, well, Derek, I don't know a whole lot about Congress, but it surely seems like you ought to stop doing that. And so one of our recommendations was stop doing that. 
you know, actually try to have the orientation process be less partisan. You know, one of our recommendations was to allow bipartisan co-sponsorship of legislation. You know, I have examples of legislation I've worked on, including, by the way, the first bipartisan campaign finance reform bill in more than a decade that I worked on with a Republican. We spent months working on this legislation together to be able to find consensus together. Under the current system, do you know how we determined who the lead sponsor would be? We flipped a coin Um, because you couldn't list both of us, despite the fact that both of us and our teams worked on that legislation together. So one of our recommendations within the select committee was allow bipartisan co-sponsorship of legislation. So if I work on a bill with William Timmons, who was my Republican vice chair, it can be the Kilmer Timmons bill rather than just the Kilmer bill with Timmons signed on as a, as a co-sponsor. You know, uh, I'll tell you another bit of history. We used to have thoroughly bipartisan freshman orientation for a couple of decades, at least. My institution, the American Enterprise Institute, along with Brookings and the Congressional Research Service, would do a week-long orientation, usually down at Williamsburg. Members would bring families. We would take a train down, everybody together, and it had remarkable positive consequences. When Gingrich became speaker, One of the first things that happened, and of course, there was also the Harvard orientation, which goes back a long ways and which itself was very bipartisan. The Heritage Foundation immediately after 1994 established its own separate orientation at the same time as the Harvard one in Baltimore. And that was the beginning of the end of bipartisan orientations. And you're right, it makes a difference. One of the things that would happen when we had these bipartisan orientations that were several days long is that members would get to know each other. And even if they weren't on committees together, those relationships existed. Now it becomes very, very hard. I mean, it's always hard in an institution with 435 people to get to know all of your colleagues. I remember back when I first came to Washington, 1969-70. And I was working for a congressman from Minnesota named Don Fraser, one of the all-time greats. And Don had been there already at that point for eight years. And at one point, a Republican came into his office to speak with him about something, and he had no idea who it was. Had never met him. And that can happen. But if you can build those relationships, it can make a difference. You know, at the same time, let's face it, Derek. The way things are now, even if you build those relationships, we know we just had a vote to kick Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee. It was more a a matter of retribution than it was out of deep-seated reasons to do so. And almost every Republican, including those who have worked with you on many things, Others who we would consider to be more institutionalist or at least institution-minded all went along. We're in a tribal world. What can we do? You know, I, I mentioned that NBC News poll. That was one of the things I found alarming in the last year. There was another poll, I think it was a battleground poll, that asked Americans on a scale of 0 to 100 to place 
where the United States currently is, with zero being no conflict and 100 being civil war. And the median score was a 70, which I find pretty alarming, the notion that Americans think we are more than two-thirds of the way to civil war. Unfortunately, I've seen this manifested in my district, and I don't think my district is unique in that regard. I went and visited a YMCA in my district thinking they were going to talk to me about the fact that gymnasiums were losing money during the pandemic. That is actually not what they wanted to talk about. What they wanted to talk, I showed up and they said, you know what? All of the conflict that we see in Congress, all of the polarization that we see on cable news has shown up in our YMCA. They said, we've literally had fights break out in our YMCA over politics, over pick your red or blue issue. And they said, it's become so bad, we can't ignore it anymore. So we've hired a consultant that's training our staff and training our board in conflict resolution. We're going to hold bridging events where we bring people together across their differences to try to actually have discussions in a civil way rather than seeing our YMCA turn into the Jerry Springer show. And they said, just out of curiosity, any federal support for something like that? I said, you know, not, not currently. That same month, unfortunately, in my district, we had a series of attacks on religious institutions. The Islamic Center was burned to the ground. We had two Buddhist faith leaders who got assaulted. We saw a church get vandalized all within the span of about six weeks. And to the credit of the community, they they formed an interfaith solidarity event to, in essence, say, hey, that's not what we're about. We're going to have each other's backs. And the main message was actually really inspiring. The main message was, you know, part of living in a religiously and otherwise diverse pluralistic democracies, you're going to live next to people who think and look and pray differently than you do, and it cannot come to violence and conflict. And afterwards, one of the faith leaders approached me and said, you know, that was a pretty good 90 minutes, but if we were going to do this right, we would do this in an ongoing way. They said, just out of curiosity, any federal support for something like that? And I said, not really, not currently at least. And so um, I actually went to work on this. We introduced a bill in the last Congress called the Building Civic Bridges Act. It's 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans. And it would set up a new pilot program within AmeriCorps to do grant making to local organizations that are trying to do the hard work of bringing people together across their differences. Part of the reason you see polarization in Congress is because we are a reflection of the communities from which we come. I still remember. In my first week on the job, the first week, Norm, I was on the armed services committee. They had all the freshman members on armed services and foreign affairs go to the Pentagon, meet with the military leadership, the joint chiefs and the secretary of defense. We took the bus back to the Capitol. And as the bus pulled in, it was seven o'clock at night. I stood up on the bus. It was my first week on the job and said, hey, I'm going to go grab a burger up on Pennsylvania Avenue if anyone wants to come because it was my first week on the job. I was like, I want to get to know people. But three Democrats and three Republicans go up to Good Stuff Burgers on Pennsylvania Avenue. You know, we're just shooting the breeze. You know, what was your race like? What's your district like? About 45 minutes in, I said something along the lines of, you know, it seems like we ought to be able to get some stuff done together. And the guy across the table from me was a Republican from the Midwest, uh, from a deep red district. And he said, Derek, I like you. And he said, but here's what you don't understand. He said, I won my seat by defeating a Republican incumbent. And I ran against him as not being conservative enough. That's how I won. He said, the first vote I cast when I got to Congress was a vote against John Boehner for speaker. And I sent out a press release after that vote saying I voted against John Boehner because he's too compromising, too willing to work with Democrats. He said, I was applauded in my district for that vote. And he says, here's what you don't understand. I like you, but my constituents didn't send me here to work with you. They sent me here to stop you. And I walked out of that burger joint and I called up my wife and I said, I have two reactions to this. One, how incredibly honest and forthcoming. And second, oh my God, right? Like this is a big <laughs> problem. 
And so, you know, to some degree, members are a reflection of the districts that they serve. And so as we think about how do we reduce conflict in Congress, we also have to think about how do we reduce conflict in our communities? You know, I just saw, I think it was a Pew poll that uh, the overwhelming majority of Republicans in the country, when asked, uh, the Republicans in Congress compromise and work with President Biden or hold firm and not compromise, the not compromise one. And that is, was there in your first week, it's perhaps hardened now. Um, just for a minute, we know the one area that's most explosive right now is the debt ceiling. I have for a long time, I tried over and over again to take this issue permanently off the table. Uh, the best way to me, other than simply eliminating it uh, and taking us to a place where every other significant democracy is, was the so-called McConnell rule, where the president could unilaterally raise the debt ceiling. Congress could block it with a joint resolution, but he could veto that, and then he, all he would need would be one-third plus one. And we weren't able to succeed. Frankly, we weren't able to succeed during the lame duck session because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, but also because the Senate Republicans weren't willing to take that off the table. Where do you think we are with this? And given what you see in the dynamic within the House, are we going to avoid a catastrophe here? I don't know. I sure hope so. Having said that, you know, I think it was on the maybe 11th or 12th vote for Speaker of the House where I said, heck, if we can't elect a Speaker, wait till we get to something hard, like the debt limit, right? This is a real problem. And this gets at, you know, just a fundamental question of, do we pay our bills? There's a lot of demagoguery happening here with folks saying, oh, well, we could just prioritize some bills over others. <laughs> that is a default. Right. <laughs> when you think about it in your family, if you're like, well, we're just going to pay, you know, we'll pay the mortgage, but we're not going to pay for the car. Right. Like, well, they're going to come and take the car. You know, you don't get to not pay some of the bills. That is a default. And you can make that choice just like any of our families can make the choice not to pay the minimum balance on our credit card. But it'll really screw up your finances. And so I think we're playing with fire here. I agree with you about the importance of, at the very least, de-weaponizing this issue around the debt limit, because it's a hostage you cannot shoot um, without doing massive, massive damage uh, to our economy. So I, I wish I could, I I'm not a good prognosticator on these things. I know um, that the president sat down with the speaker yesterday to at least start the dialogue. I hope something comes of that, because you know, the, the, the peril of a default is significant and would hurt the people I represent. So more generally, are you optimistic about where we're going? Are you pessimistic? I try to be optimistic. I mean, to be frank, to be blunt, I look at uh, your colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Many of them I know, some of whom were on committees with you, who in a different era, in a different culture, in a different time would be constructive, problem-solving people, but they're joined by a much larger group of nihilists, people who don't have an interest in making policy, but in blowing things up. And when I see some of your colleagues, including uh, Mike Pence's brother, Greg, in a district in Indiana, saying, I'll never compromise on the debt ceiling, it tells me that 
we've got a bigger problem at this point than uh, structural reform can fix. Well, I couldn't be in this job if I weren't a genetically hopeful person. You know, it's funny, Norm, I used to call myself an optimist and I had this shtick with one of the faith leaders in my area. When I saw them, they'd say, how's it going? And I'd say, I'm genetically optimistic. And one day they gave me a sheet of paper on my way out to the car and they said, stop calling yourself an optimist. And I looked at it and on the sheet of paper was a quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And it said, there's a difference between optimism and hope. He said, optimism is a passive virtue. It is the belief that things will get better. He said, hope is an active virtue. It's the belief that together we can make things better. He said, it doesn't take courage to have optimism, but it does take courage to hope. And I really like that because it, as it understands that we have a sense of agency, that we are not passive observers of our democracy. We, each of us, you and I, and anybody watching or listening to this, uh, have agency. We can be part of trying to work to make things better. And that's why I work on this modernization committee. And it's a big part of the reason I serve in the United States House. That is a great place uh, in which to end. I can have some hope uh, as long as we have members like Derek Kilmer in the House. But it's uh, getting harder and harder to be, even in a passive way, optimistic. Thank you so much, Derek Kilmer. This is Grant Haver, producer of Words Matter. Thanks for joining us. We'd appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. We'd also hope that you share this episode with your friends on social media. If you like this episode and want to hear what Norm and I took away from the conversation, become a member of the DSR Network to hear our conversation. The executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Cottonor, and the producer of Words Matter is me, Grant Haver. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on February 10th. See you then.